to everyone that's tuning in, hello and welcome. I am Tajun Mi and I'm a radio producer at Arirang. While Arirang Radio is an FM radio station on Jeju-do Island, a famously breathtaking island in Korea, I am personally based in Seoul. Seoul is where I was born and raised, where I attended elementary, middle and high school, as well as university, and where I've been working my entire life. The only time I left the bustling capital was when I went to the United States at the age of 30 to study English for nine months. So I've practically spent nearly my whole life of 50-something years in this mega city. The reason for giving you all that background info on me was to let you know that I'm truly a born and bred urbanite who has zero experience and expertise when it comes to farming or let alone gardening but I decided to give it a shot about eight months ago. And well, spoiler alert, urban farming was a major challenge that left me feeling inept at times. But despite all its ups and downs, it was a wonderfully fulfilling experience and I'd like to share it with you. I hope you enjoy this story of a newbie farmer in the city. So, Let's begin this special program that was masterminded by me in celebration of the 20th anniversary of Arirang Radio. It's City Farmer. My journey of becoming a city farmer wasn't planned at all. It all began fortuitously when one day, I heard that Sochugu in Seoul, where our station is located, has community gardens, and they offer public institutions free yearly rentals of two 10-square-meter garden plots. That instantly piqued my interest. Now, like many others, I tend to associate farming or even gardening with the countryside and my memories of the countryside were visiting my uncle, who was a school teacher in a small town, when I was young and being offered fried grasshoppers to eat. Oh, and then there was the time back in college when I volunteered as a Bible school teacher at a rural church, and of course, the scenic views of rural areas that I'd taken in while traveling the country. But perhaps the biggest reason the idea of urban farming appealed to me was because of the memories of living in a house with a yard when I was a teenager. We had a date tree in our yard and we planted leaf lettuce, cucumber, eggplant, pepper, and green onion around it. And I fondly remember seeing yellow pumpkin flowers bloom against the wall fence and watering the garden on summer evenings. Fast forward a decades later, Living in an apartment, I had tried growing a few edible plants in the veranda two years in a row, but failed miserably. Yet, I had kept dreaming of one day living in a detached house with a yard and a vegetable garden. So, on February 15, I submitted my application and gardening plan, and two weeks later, I was notified by Sochugu office that I'd been selected. What should I plant in the garden? When should I start? 
How should I go about it? Not having a clear sense of direction, I surveyed the radio crew for some ideas. If you had a vegetable garden, what would you plant? Leaf lettuce, tomato, cherry tomato, potato, wasabi, kale, asparagus, rosemary, cucumber for pickling, eggplant, chili pepper, sweet potato, arugula, mint, basil, cilantro, napa cabbage, radish, green onion, and hmm. Pineapple and guava. I decided to get some help from an expert, and as luck would have it, one of my coworkers said she could introduce me to a friend working in a field related to eco-friendly farming. It was perfect, considering that even urban community gardens do not allow the use of chemical fertilizers or pesticides. I was told that the friend was running what's called a permaculture school, so I decided to pay a visit. Friday, March twenty-fourth, Tobungu Permaculture School reopened its doors and school was back in session. Permaculture is a portmanteau of the words permanent and agriculture, and it is aimed at practicing sustainable and eco-friendly agriculture. Rooted in agriculture, one of the earliest forms of culture of humanity, permaculture is a movement to create a sustainable and eco-friendly culture. When asked for more details, today's instructor and permaculture activist Soren said, "Permaculture is a way of life aimed at becoming more like nature. It's about making certain lifestyle choices related to housing, food, and clothing, especially in response to the climate crisis. And this is why we call ourselves climate farmers." We contemplate ways to store carbon in the ground and produce food and live in a self-sufficient manner. The term permaculture was first coined in the late 1970s by Australian biologist Bill Mollison and his student David Holmgren, who, while pondering sustainable farming methods, became inspired by circular agriculture practiced in Southeast Asia as well as Korea at the time. The main goal of permaculture is to grow plants in soil, where they can thrive without the need for plowing, fertilizer, or compost. It sounds great, but is it actually feasible? Permaculture gardens are different from the urban community garden that I was going to be working on. In the case of urban community gardens, the local government accepts new applications every year, assigns garden plots to randomly selected applicants, and plows the field at the end of the year, so there is no choice but to grow just annual plants. At Soran's permaculture garden, on the other hand, there were mainly perennials, especially herbs. To be completely honest, though, they all look like shriveled bushes and weeds in my eyes. But Soran quickly pointed out that there were chives, mint, peppermint, stringy stone crop, common handbit, speedwells. Korean mint and so on, and suggested that I would have a taste. 
Perennial plants are set to promote microbial activity in soil, thereby restoring soil fertility. The restoration process usually takes around three years, and Soron's field turned three this year. Once soil fertility is restored, Soran says that nature can be trusted to allow plants to grow even if they aren't planted properly. There were seven students at the permaculture school, three men and four women, whose age ranged from 40s to 60s. In addition to managing the communal arb garden together, they were each given their own garden plots. Seeing everyone so excited, I couldn't wait for my community garden to open in a week. To obtain a word of advice before leaving, I asked Soran to share her thoughts on the biggest challenge faced by city farmers. Potatoes are usually dug up during the summer solstice when it's sweltering and weeds grow like crazy. So novice urban farmers start panicking and want to give up. Half of them disappear from the field after the potato harvest season. You just have to push through that one time and things will get easier afterwards. It's called the curse of the potatoes. Saturday, April 1st. It was the opening day of the Urban Community Garden, and I arrived at 9.30 a.m. The director of the radio center and two staff members and an announcer from Arirang Radio came, holding his son's hand. Since the application was submitted under Arirang Radio's name, the radio staff offered to lend a hand, even though I'd be the main person in charge. We were assigned plots at Shinan Garden located in Negokdong, Seochogu, aside from which Seochogu office also manages Cheongnyong Garden, Angol Garden, and Gochorong Garden, which are all within a 10-minute drive from each other. Cheongnyong Garden is the biggest, and because of its proximity to a subway station and residential areas, many people apply but only one in four applicants succeed in receiving a garden plot. Our garden, on the other hand, is near impossible to get to without a car. Sachugu office had already leveled the ground and added organic fertilizer to the soil two weeks prior because it usually takes about two weeks for the ammonia gas to escape the ground for crops to be planted. We received five seedlings of green leaf lettuce red leaf lettuce and mugwort, each for free from Sachugo office, and bought a bag of argula seeds, radish seeds, and spinach seeds each, as well as 10 seed potatoes from the management office. We were assigned plots 63 and 80. There were several tools available such as hoes, spades, and pitchforks to be shared among the community garden farmers. And there we were, scratching our heads, not sure how far apart the seedlings should be planted, how deep the ground should be dug, whether to sow the seeds individually or together. 
We started with the potatoes. We mounded the soil, created a depression, and planted the seed potatoes with the potato sprouts facing up. We also planted two rows of leaf lettuce, one row of mugwort, two rows of arugula, two rows of radish, two rows of spinach, and two rows of potatoes. There was still some space left afterwards, so we decided to buy more seedlings. As for plot 80, we plan to sow fruit-bearing plants in a month's time. We watered the garden for the first time and our first day of laboring in the garden came to a close. While toiling away, we had the pleasure of meeting the people who'd be working on the garden plot next to ours. They were members of the Kumduri Volunteer Society for Persons with Disabilities. April 7th, I planted the siler, Victory onion, taro, mustard, basil, apple mint, Italian parsley, and cilantro seedlings that I'd bought at the Yangjie flower market. April 13th, I arrived at our garden and saw sprouts poking out from the ground, which still appeared quite hard. It was a proud, joyous moment for this novice farmer who promised to take a good care of them. May 1st, I thinned the seedlings of leaf lettuce, radish, and spinach. It broke my heart seeing some of the rooted plants being pulled out in the process, but I reminded myself that thinning must be done a few times to obtain quality crop. And well before I knew it, I harvested my first crop my hard work was rewarded with a bountiful amount of fresh leaf lettuce and mugwort. What a proud moment that was! May 3rd It wasn't too long ago that I'd been worrying it was unusually cold for spring, but on this day, the daytime temperature in Seoul surprisingly peaked at 25 degrees Celsius. I arrived at the garden at 1.30 p.m. to plant fruit crops. By the time I determined where to plant and what and created a mound for sweet potatoes, I started feeling lightheaded because of the sun. I couldn't imagine how unbearable it'd be to work on the garden in the brutal heat of the summer. I would have to either come to the garden in the wee hours of the morning to work or not even bother to come at all. I planted chili pepper, tomato and eggplant seedlings in plot 80, sweet potato seedlings behind it and perilla, celery, chicory and kale seedlings in the remaining space of plot 63 and the two plots were finally full. The overgrown weeds caught my eye but being completely drained by the heat and labor, I consciously ignored them. What I found hard to disregard, though, were the holes in the romaine lettuce and radish leaves. Ugh. Oh, and I found out later that I had planted the sweet potatoes the wrong way. They're supposed to be placed on their side at an angle, but I planted them upright, like every other seedling. 
Sorry guys, but I'd really appreciate it if you could still, you know, grow, if you don't mind. Urban agriculture refers to cultivating agricultural products in an urban environment. So growing plants in your apartment veranda, or on a building rooftop, or working on a weekend farm in the suburbs, or a community garden in the city is all considered urban farming. Sachogu Office's community garden program was launched in 2012. The person who came up with the idea was Yun dong who is now the head of the urban agriculture team at Sachogu Office. He proposed that a formal public parking lot that had been sitting idly be transformed into a vegetable garden, which would be more useful for the community. How did he come up with this idea? Before coming to Sachigu office, I worked in an urban agriculture-related division at Kangdonggu office. So I knew that an urban community garden benefits residents by allowing them to enjoy leisure activity and meet their neighbors. And so, Cheongnyeong Garden was created at the parking lot. It must have drawn quite a favorable response, considering there are now three more. Yes, from 2008 to 2010, urban community gardens boomed nationwide. As a result, a law on urban agriculture was enacted and autonomous districts issued related ordinances. This was in response to the growing demand and participation rate. Then what's the participation rate for Sochogu's community garden program? There are a total of 503 plots in the four gardens of Sochogu, and according to Mr. Yun, there are plots managed by several people together, so assuming that there are, say, 2.5 people on average working on each of the 503 plots, it comes out to be roughly 1,250 people. That's about 0.3% of the population of Sochogu. According to the statistics from the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs, the number of participants in the Urban Community Garden programs nationwide in 2022 was about 1.96 million, which is about 3.8% of the Korean population. It's hard to say this isn't a lot, but officials hope that more people get to enjoy the benefits of urban community gardens. It's therapeutic. There's something magical about watching your crops grow. It's also good for your health because you're working and sweating, and it's a way to naturally educate your kids about nature. Plus, the crops taste different from store-bought produce. Sachigu is arguably one of the areas of Seoul with the worst housing affordability. And because of the sky-high real estate prices, it's likely that the urban community gardens in this part of the town will unfortunately shrink or disappear altogether in the name of urban development. This past July, the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs announced its goal to boost the number of urban farmers to 3 million and foster 1,000 urban farming communities within five years. Hopefully, everything will go according to the plan so that we can see more people in farmers' hats and boots in the city.
June arrived, and Shinan Garden looked noticeably different, with the lush greenness and other beautiful shades of edible plants growing deeper and richer every day. There were unfamiliar crops in other people's gardens that triggered my curiosity, like a tomato variety with fig-like fruits called Pascal de Picardy, and another tomato variety with an interesting name, Evil Olive. There were also strawberries, watermelons, kohlrabi, and even corn. The corns cultivated on plot 40 were the biggest, and they were the work of a retired engineer with four years of experience working on a community garden under his belt. Meanwhile, Arirang Radio's garden screamed newbie. The plants had been pretty much devoured by heartless insects, and the leaves were far from flourishing, so there were not much to harvest. Believe me when I say I didn't have any lofty goals. When I started this project, the emphasis was on taking the initiative and trying something new and different. And I genuinely cherished every moment I saw a new sprout peeking out from the soil. But I'm only human, and I couldn't help but compare my garden with the others. I became dejected seeing my tomato vines without cluster of tomatoes, my eggplant stems falling over again and again. And my leaf lettuce that just won't grow. I sought help from the other city farmers, who have all been there and done that, and they were more than willing to share their tips and tricks. When I told them that the bugs kept nibbling on my precious crops. <laughs> I was recommended to use granular fertilizer and insecticide. Granular fertilizer was to be buried around the roots, while an eco-friendly insecticide had to be sprayed on top of the soil and flushed with water. The person working on an adjacent plot told me that I had planted the taro in the wrong spot. Taro thrives in the part shade, whereas sweet potatoes require an abundance of sunshine. But I put them in completely opposite spots. The manager of the community garden was quite helpful as well. Sir, look, the crown daisies have bloomed. Little did I know that when it comes to vegetables, you have to cut the flower stalks periodically so that the stems and leaves can flourish. I was told. That the reddish stems and leaves have become too tough to eat, and that the potatoes would flower soon, and they'd have to be removed in order for the roots to grow stronger. I was also instructed to keep piling up the mound where the potatoes were planted. Of course, just because someone's experienced doesn't mean they have all the answers. The farmer from plot forty came over. When I told him that my potato plants were hardly bearing any fruit, and after taking a look, he muttered, "Hmm, what could have possibly gone wrong?" Before walking off, well, I guess I must have done something wrong then. There are times when we encourage each other. <laughs> If all's well, then great. If not, then well, meh. Yeah, meh. If it's a flop, then it's a flop. 
My attempt at growing spinach, radish, arugula, mustard, chicory, basil, mint, and cilantro was a disaster. But there was a crop that allowed me to relish my joy of harvest, and it was sweet potato. Sweet potato shoots tend to grow fast, and they need to be trimmed somewhat for the actual root to get the nutrients it needs to grow. This is actually great because sweet potato shoots are an awesome ingredient for a side dish, but they are hardly ever available in grocery stores these days. And even when they are, they are more expensive than the actual sweet potatoes. Well, thanks to this project, I got to savor these precious sweet potato shoots to my heart's content this summer, and I felt like there was nothing more that I could possibly want. July 19th, I finally dug out our potatoes. The potatoes we planted are called summer solstice potatoes because they are usually harvested and eaten around the summer solstice. Summer solstice occurred on June 21st this year, but our potatoes weren't ready to be pulled up just yet. The leaves were still green, and it's tricky to dry and store potatoes during the rainy season, which started at the end of that week. During the rainy season, I pulled up a couple a few times when it was sunny, but they were too small. So it wasn't after mid-July, a month after the summer solstice, that I was finally able to harvest all the potatoes from our garden. The bigger ones were around the size of my fist, but they were mostly small. I gave some to a colleague, and she made delicious soy sauce braised potatoes with them. I didn't realize that I had already been affected by the curse of the potatoes. Weeds are so very prolific and resilient. Every time I returned to our garden and saw it overrun with these unwanted guests, I just wanted to call it quits and go home. Back in spring, a gentle scratch with a spade or hoe would pull them out by the roots. But by July, I could barely pull them out using both hands. The last time I was at the garden, I got so hot and exhausted that I wasn't able to work on one of the garden plots at all. And by the time I returned, it had turned into a jungle. How could this be? A combination of heavy rain and oppressive heat is a recipe for disaster when it comes to farming. This is probably why, when the rainy season rolls around in summer, a number of garden plots get abandoned, resulting in weeds growing out of control, with some of them reaching all the way up to the waist level. When that happens, the management office sends a text message to the person responsible for the garden plot. But if there is no response, the responsibility for the upkeep falls onto the garden manager's lap, because otherwise, the other gardeners will suffer from the consequences. 
Pulling weeds is a time-consuming and laborious process that sucks the energy right out of you. So if you're like me, you'll probably stop midway and tell yourself, well, this looks good enough for me. But then when you come back and see the overgrown weeds, you'll feel instant regret. They say there's a time for everything, and I think this is especially true for farming. There is a right time to sow the seeds, plant the seedlings, fertilize the soil, thin out the seedlings, pull out the weeds, water the plants, and harvest the crops. And if you miss the timing, then, well, too bad for you, because there is no such thing as do-overs or second chances. You're done. By the way, where do all these stubborn weeds come from? Do they lie dormant in the ground and pop up whenever I'm not here? Or are they carried over here by the wind from afar? Why can't I get rid of them? Hmm, wait a minute. Are you sure you can't eat those? With all these random thoughts running across my head, I pulled out all the weeds from our garden and all together, they were the size of three huge rugs. And I found out later that interestingly enough, some weeds are actually edible. The so-called weeds that I battled with all summer were Portulaca oleracea, southern crabgrass, and goosegrass that are used to make side dishes in the countryside. This actually shouldn't come as a complete surprise, considering that many of the crops we consume today were once considered weeds back in the day. There is something else that is found in abundance in our garden, and it's ants. Well, when you pull out a weed, it creates quite a frenzy underground. The ants grab the eggs as they scurry to safety amid the chaos. Sorry little critters, but these weeds have to go. At Cheongnyong Garden, the biggest community garden in Sachugu, there is a learning center called Chehwawan, where Che means vegetables and Hwa means flowers. So basically, it's a place of vegetables and flowers. There is an academy for city farmers, and they offer classes on herbs, repotting, natural dye, and more. I dropped by Chehwawan to meet the manager, Kim Eunju. Cheongyong Garden, like Shinheung Garden, is located along a stream. From the entrance, there is a long row of large Jalkova trees on the right, with wooden tables and chairs for urban farmers to enjoy a much-needed respite from the heat under the tree shade in the summertime. Behind the Jalkova tree is a large building where the management office is located. Chehwawan is located in the garden area, there are two tall structures made of wood and plastic. One of them is used as a classroom and the other as a greenhouse. The roof of the greenhouse can be opened like wings with the click of a switch. And this is a useful feature for regulating the temperature and ventilating the inside. 
Kim Eun-ju, the manager of Chewawon, calls herself a learning farmer. This is because she didn't pick up farming naturally. She had to study and learn to be a farmer. She says she started studying landscaping first because she loved working with the soil, and she became aware of urban community gardens in 2015. She learned the basics of urban farming through a free program at the Seoul Urban Agriculture Center and eventually became a certified urban agriculture specialist. So why did she become interested in urban agriculture? With the average life expectancy expected to reach 100, I pondered what I should do when I grow old, and I concluded that farming would be the best choice because it get me moving and engage in some moderate physical labor, and at the same time enjoy leisure, interact with friends, and earn an income. In addition to managing Chewawon, she teaches after-school classes at kindergartens and elementary schools and is often called upon to teach classes on urban agriculture. Of course, not just anyone can do this. You have to complete the necessary training and obtain certificates. And she has... Many. To be an urban agriculture manager, you need an organic agriculture craftsman certificate. After completing the urban agriculture program and becoming certified as an organic agriculture craftsman, floral design craftsman, landscaping craftsman, or the like, you can become a certified urban agriculture manager. You can also become certified as an insect expert or therapeutic farming expert. I recommend visiting Seoul Agricultural Technology Center's website to learn more about the annual training programs available. Kim Eun-ju is so busy that she's rarely home during the week. Her husband often tells her that she works so hard and that she could take a break. But she has no intention of quitting her job. I often just sit here listening to music and watering the plants. As soon as I come in in the morning, I say to the plants, Hey guys, did you sleep well last night? Kim Hyun-sun from Sochogu Farmers School is a formal public servant who worked for Seoul Metropolitan Government and then switched jobs to work at a nursing home for seniors. It wasn't until four years ago that she came across urban farming for the first time. There's nothing more therapeutic than this. It makes me feel very proud to see the plants growing and being the one who cultivated them. I value each and every one of them. I also feel so proud when I give them to others. This year, Sochogu office ran an urban farmer school with four classes in the spring and four classes in the fall. Students were taught a number of useful techniques and essential procedures related to crop cultivation, thinning, watering, making natural liquid fertilizer, and the fertilizer supplementation cycle, and they had a chance to practice the skills together. I thought about signing up, but I didn't because I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to make time on Saturdays. Looking back, I'm full of regrets. The number of classes is expected to double next year because the instructors felt that they didn't have enough time to go over everything. But more importantly, it's been highly requested by students this year.
August 31st. I arrived at the garden at around 7:30 in the morning. It had rained for a few days, so I was glad to finally see a clear blue sky and feel the crisp air and cool breeze on my face. After hearing my complaints about bugs, Kimunju suggested that I sprinkle boron powder on the soil before planting the crops, because boron helps repel insects by raising the temperature of the ground. I was going to buy boron powder, but then I realized that the fertilizer I'd brought had a high percentage of boron, so I sprinkled that instead. I also received free fertilizer from Sochugu office, and I poured all 20 kilograms of it onto plot 63. As for plot 80, there were only taro and sweet potatoes left, and I decided that after harvesting those, I'd leave plot 80 empty. I mean, it was time to admit defeat. I couldn't handle two plots all by myself. A lot of my colleagues at the radio station were eager to help in the beginning, but they lost all interest after getting a taste of what urban farming truly entails. The fertilizer was so heavy that I poked the holes into the bag and dragged it around. Then I mixed the soil and fertilizer together using a shovel and evened out the ground with the pitchfork. September 14th. Two weeks had passed since I added fertilizer to the soil. I asked around at the garden what they usually planted in the fall, and most of them answered radish and napa cabbage. But I decided to sow the seeds I got from Sochugu office for free. They were seeds for an assortment of leafy greens, green onion, radish, and leaf mustard. The vibrant sounds of summer were gone by this point. Replaced with the gentle, relaxing sound of fall. One of the changes that I experienced because of this project. Was that I became preoccupied with the weather. Before, I used to just check weather forecasts to decide what to wear, see if I needed an umbrella or what not. But ever since I started farming, I became worried sick about my crops whenever the weather seemed less than ideal. Did the tiny little sprouts survive the cold winds? Did they shrivel up under the blazing sun? Ah, with this much rain. My babies are going to drown to death. This year, the temperature in Seoul reached almost as high as 30 degrees Celsius by May, and strange natural disasters affected various other parts of the world, such as wildfires lasting for months in Australia, Canada, and Hawaii, torrential rain in the Death Valley, a desert area in the United States, France experiencing its worst drought in 500 years. And glacier lake outburst floods in Alaska, which were all quite alarming. That combined with the news of massive earthquakes as well as wars, I couldn't help but imagine what the future held for humanity with trepidation. Then, all of a the sudden, 
I remembered reading an article about South Korea becoming the second country in the world to build a seed vault referred to as modern-day Noah's Ark. Intrigued, I decided to visit the seed vault situated at Pekdudega National Arboretum. The seed vault is designated and managed as a national security facility and its location is kept confidential. For instance, the seed vault is mentioned on the Arboretum Information Board, yet its location isn't indicated on the map. And this is also why Tesla electric cars, whose locations are automatically tracked, are not allowed on site. Because of its importance, the seed vault is closed to the general public, so I instead visited the seed vault operations center office overlooking the seed vault. <laughs> Peggy Hwa, the head of the Seed Vault Operations Center, took office in February 2022. Before then, he worked at the seed research lab of a seed bank and Sejong Arboretum's temperate central plant conservation center. There are only two seed vaults in the world, one in Svalbard, Norway, and the other at Pekdudegan Arboretum in South Korea. What sets them apart? Svalbard is a seed vault serving as a backup storage for seeds that can provide food supply, whereas we store wild plant seeds. So the objectives of the two seed vaults are different. I guess you could say that Svalbard primarily stores the seeds of edible plants, while we store seeds related to all aspects of human life that are useful for the present and future generations. The Svalbard Seed Vault was created in 2008 as an initiative of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. It receives seeds from around the world to preserve food resources. The Seed Vault at Pekdudegan Arboretum, on the other hand, opened in December 2015 and is an operated and managed by the Korea Arboretum and Gardens Institute. Is there a particular reason they decided to store wild plant seeds? Seeds of edible plants are preserved in seed banks in a number of countries. There are more than 1,700 seed banks worldwide, and the same seeds are stored in different locations for security purposes. The Svalbard Seed Vault is a place where such seeds of edible plants from all over the world is stored altogether. For the seed vault in Korea, though, it was decided to go beyond food resources and preserve a broader range of wild plant seeds. Considering the fact that the food we currently eat originated from the wild, the seed vault is serving as a backup storage for not only food resources, but also other resources for humanity and the earth. Then what's the difference between a seed bank and a seed vault? Seed banks can utilize or distribute seeds, whereas seed vaults, on the other hand, cannot distribute the seeds because they don't have ownership over them. When a country or an organization asks a seed vault to take custody of seed, it is stored securely after going through a rigorous data verification process. The seeds never see the light of the day again unless the depositors request them. 
Of course, there are cases where the seed vault operating organization collects and stores wild plants themselves, but once they are brought into the seed vault, they can't be taken out of the facility as one pleases. At present, the seed vault staff are currently working on collecting and storing seeds of natural monuments this way. Only once in history has a seed has ever been removed from the seed vault, and it was during the Syrian civil war, which is still ongoing. A seed bank in Syria was destroyed, resulting in the loss of seeds that would provide future food supply. So Syria took out their own seeds that had been deposited at seed vault in Svalbard. So, does a seed vault charge a fee in exchange for its service? No. A seed vault's work must be driven by a strong sense of mission to serve the global community based on love for humanity. It's about preparing for a day when may possibly come but should never come. There are up to 500,000 species of wild plants in the world. The seed vault in Korea has the capacity to store 2 million seeds and currently has about 195,000 in storage. While it has secured the seeds of about 80% of the wild plants in Korea, there is still a long way to go in collecting wild plant seeds from around the world. This is why KEYS, an official certification program of the Asian Forest Cooperation Organization, has been launched to educate stakeholders on the importance of wild plant seed conservation and seek their cooperation and assistance. KEYS is an acronym for Keep Eternally Your Seed. While interviewing people at the seed vault, I learned that many of the Korean seed companies were sold to foreign entities following the 1997 Asian financial crisis. The radish seeds I planted were actually from a seed company that was formerly based in Korea, but was sold to China during that time. That is, to plant radish, the seeds of which belong to a Korean company, Koreans now have to pay a large amount of royalty to a Chinese seed company. Nam jong an assistant manager at the Seed Vault Operations Center, says that for every nation needs to maintain food sovereignty. I recently went to Paraguay with the head of the center, and I noticed that manufactured goods were very expensive, whereas food was relatively cheaper. Most countries in South America are able to supply their own food, even if international trade becomes impossible or they become isolated. In other words, they are self-sufficient when it comes to food. Korea, on the other hand, is highly dependent on imported food. In the event of a war or disaster, will Korea be able to feed itself? Korea's food self-sufficiency rate is around 40%, and the grain self-sufficiency rate, which includes grains for feed, is a mere 20%. A few days after I returned from interviewing people at the seed vault, a report was published stating that humanity had just experienced the hottest year in 125,000 years. In 2023, 90% of the global population experienced more than 10 days of extreme temperatures, temperatures that were either too hot or too cold. Climate Central, 
the climate change research organization that released the report, warned that most of the effects of El Nino, the cause behind the extreme temperatures this year, will actually be apparent next year. As we exited September and moved into October, the mornings became cool enough that I didn't have to get to the garden at dawn to work. In the meantime, I harvested taro and sweet potatoes, which I had never done before. I made taro soup with the taro roots and boiled and seasoned the stems to make a side dish. The sweet potatoes ended up growing fairly nicely, even though this city farmer planted them incorrectly. The radish, which was a flop back in spring, thrived this time. I waited until their roots grew big before pulling them out and drying the leaves. I planned on eating them as shiregi or dried radish grains as a source of vitamin C during winter. I set aside the larger radishes to make radish soup. One of my colleagues took the leaves of leaf mustard to make kimchi with them. Where I planted the seeds of assorted leafy veggies, red leaf lettuce, green leaf lettuce, mugwort, and chicory grew randomly. Perhaps the soil contained plenty of nutrients this time because they flourished and could be shared with quite a few people. The green onions hadn't grown to their full size just yet, so I transplanted them into pots and gave them out. On November 20th, I wrapped up my little project at the urban community garden. The leafy vegetables I planted were green leaf lettuce, red leaf lettuce, mugwort, perilla, radish, romaine lettuce, mustard, chicory, kale, celery, Italian parsley, basil, siler, victory onion, apple mint, cilantro, green onion, leaf mustard, and cabbage. The fruit crops I planted were chili pepper, tomato, and eggplant. And the root crops I planted were taro, sweet potato, and potato. Oh, and at one point, I also had four garden balsam plants given to me by Kim Eun-ju in the garden. The only crops that were honestly a success were leaf lettuce, mugwort, chicory, perilla eggplant, sweet potato, taro, and potato. I simply wasn't a natural-born farmer, I guess. I threw away the sneakers I wore to the garden because they became so filthy from the dirt and mud that they were just beyond saving. Although my pants and my car fared a little better, they were full of stains and dirt. In summer, I left with at least a dozen bug bites each time despite having sprayed insect repellent. Nevertheless, if you asked me, would you do this again? I'd say yes, a thousand times yes. This year was also the year of the radio relicensing review, 
so there was a lot of work to do. Whenever I was too busy, my colleagues from the radio station would cover for me, and as soon as I was done, I'd rush over to the garden. For me, gardening was arguably the best therapy of the year. While I was squatting in the garden, all of my stress, frustrations, and worries were pushed to the back of my mind. Yes, it was hot and exhausting at times, but strangely enough, I didn't hate it. Some of my coworkers said urban farming just wasn't it for them. So if you want to start gardening or even farming in the future, I suggest that you try your hand at it by signing up at a local community garden first. And always remember, as a rule of thumb, the closer the community garden is, the better. That brings us to the end of this audio log of my eight-month urban farming experience. I would like to thank my fellow city farmers and the manager of Shinhan Garden for helping me in various ways. I'd also like to extend my gratitude to the teachers at the farmer school, the urban agriculture team of Sochugu office, and the Seed Vault Operations Center for their willingness to be interviewed and contribute their valuable insights. And of course, a big thank you to the radio crew who lent a helping hand whenever I needed them. But the biggest shout-out goes to the crops in our garden for sprouting, growing leaves, and bearing fruits in the hands of this novice city farmer. I'm Cha Junmi, the city farmer who produced and wrote this program. I am Chelsea Kim, the voice for the city farmer in English. And this audio log has been translated by Kaylin Rowe. Thank you for listening. 